Hello, welcome to another Silicon Valley review. I'm Kevin Vela. I'm doing this solo today, maybe a little different. My Silicon Valley podcast review partner, Aaron, is traveling. He is supposedly traveling to attend a a, uh, wedding in South Korea, so he's kind of in the danger zone out there. Uh, I do think he's out there. He's been checking in a little bit over Slack and over email. So I'm going to try and do this one solo. Not going to be the same without having Aaron here. I don't know how long uh, I can make this one or how far I can get or how interesting it will be for you. So we'll figure it out. But I do have a couple of comments. So again, just if this is your first time, you should probably go back and listen to the previous podcast because I don't know why you'd be jumping in on season three, excuse me, season four, episode three. But if it is your first time listening, I'm Kevin Vela, Vela Wood. We're a law firm based in Dallas. We've got an office in Austin. And we do a lot of venture financing. We do a lot of technology transactions. We work with a lot of startups. So we are very carefully uh, watching and reviewing Silicon Valley, the HBO show, in discussing how it relates to startup and venture-related matters in our little ecosystem. Most of our clients are based in Texas, though we do have quite a few clients around the country and a handful around the world. While we certainly understand the Dallas startup ecosystem the best, we are very familiar with that in Austin and the entire ecosystem in Texas. And then we've got some good ideas on how it works around the rest of the country. So we try and sprinkle in those understandings with our thoughts on the show. But I'm here to review season four, episode three. I believe it's called Intellectual Property is the name of the show. And the show kicks off with Ehrlich doing the pitch competition or excuse me, the pitch at uh, at Coleman Blair with Jin Yang. And so, you know, the pitch was comical in itself. And Jin Yang is got this octopus uh, recipe app, which sounds like the dumbest app I've ever heard of. But if you go and search the app store, I wouldn't be surprised to find something similar out there. There's so many apps these days. So Jin Yang has an octopus recipe app that Ehrlich was very late to the party and understanding what it is. And, you know, Jin Yang is a tenant in uh, in Ehrlich's accelerator, incubator, excuse me. And as a result, Ehrlich has a piece of ownership of it. So Ehrlich shows up for this pitch meeting at Cole Blair, Coleman Blair and only, you know, right before the pitch meeting starts does Ehrlich find out how silly the idea is. So I thought the shot of Ehrlich with his face in his palms or his hands kind of yanking his hair out in the VC meeting was pretty comical. But then Ehrlich, as he's describing a way that the app could work, he gets a great idea for an app, you know, Shazam for food. I don't know, again, probably exists. I don't know whether that's a great idea or not, but at least on the show, it seemed to be a great idea. And the VCs, the uh, the guys in the pitch really seemed to enjoy it. And so Ehrlich ends up turning in this uh, kind of thinking on the fly and creating an app idea and pitching it to Coleman Blair, and apparently these VCs are interested. So my first thought is, as it relates to real life, is there's no way that that's happening. There's no way that you're creating an idea on the spot to VCs in getting them to invest. Maybe another investor, absolutely. And you know, and there's investors of all sorts. So let's take a minute to explore that, since Aaron's not here, and he's not going to keep me in check, and I'll just talk about whatever I want to talk about. So let's talk about the different types of investors that a startup's going to encounter. The first set of investors you're going to have are going to be your friends and family. Now, in Dallas or in the Metroplex, we generally tell our clients, or from what we've seen, is that if you can't raise $50,000 to $100,000 on your own, you're probably not going to be able to get out and raise money. 
That's not a definitive statement, but it's a good rule of thumb. Now, where does that fifty dollars to $100,000 come from? That usually comes from your friends and family, or that can include you and your own savings. So the first fifty dollars to $100,000 is coming from people who are really just investing because they love you. They care about you. They believe in you. They probably don't know anything about your idea. Even if they do believe in the idea, they're probably not sophisticated angel or venture investors. So just keep that in mind. The first fifty dollars to $100,000 that comes in is usually not smart money. It's usually passionate money or money that just is coming in because people want to support or love you. But those are going to be your friends and family, maybe your buddies who have a load of extra cash, maybe your fraternity brother, maybe your, your rich aunt, maybe your old sorority sister, things like that. The next set of investors typically will be angel investors. Now, angel investors are getting more and more sophisticated. It used to just be really high net worth guys who wanted to dabble in startups. So they thought it was cool. Guys and girls, let me be clear about that. But now you're getting angel investors who are doing this as a profession. There are professional angel investors, meaning they do this full time. They take detailed notes on it. They go to conferences. They read books on it. They try to really understand not just the investments that they're making or the portfolio companies, but the process of investing and how to look for good companies and how to track those companies. And then not only do you have these individual angel investors, but you have angel syndicates, such as angel groups. I'm closely... uh, affiliated with the Dallas Angel Network. There's a bunch of them here around town. There's North Texas Angels. There's uh, Cowtown Angels. There are Golden Seeds, who are a bunch of female entrepreneurs, excuse me, female investors. There's a bunch out of the rest of Texas. There's a Houston Angel Network, Central Texas Angel Network out of Austin, which my understanding is the most active angel network in the country. There is the Baylor Angel Network and the Aggie Angel Network, and I've seen those guys. Those guys are really active, and those guys are super committed to uh, alumni of their school. So there's dozens of angel networks around the, around the state and probably hundreds around the country. But angel investors are probably going to be your first smart money in. And then once you get through an angel round, then you start looking at institutional capital. And Coleman Blair would represent institutional capital being a VC. You know, the thing about this $200,000 investment is I just can't see a situation where Coleman Blair or Raviga, for that matter, is making a $200,000 investment. It's just not going to fall in line. It's just too small. It's not going to fall in line with their investment thesis or philosophy. Uh, most, most of these companies will have a board or an investment committee makes these decisions. It's just not enough to have a material stake. Not to say they might not have a side fund that does nothing but seed stage investment. So perhaps that's where this is going. Typically, the VCs that we represent, the ones that we're on the other side of when we're company side representing a deal, they simply don't do deals that small for a number of reasons. Right? There, there, there's too much risk that early. Uh, they're not really deploying their capital you know, quickly enough. If you have a – most VC funds are going to be in the 50 to $400 million range. If you're making $200,000 investments and all the due diligence that has to go into that and then the time dealing with lawyers, all the resources, you'll never get that capital deployed. So making a small investment like that, don't see it. What I do see is principles or is a principle – from an investment firm, from a VC, making a side investment into an early stage company that he or she really believes in. I have seen that from time to time. But anyway, so that was the first kind of fiction, fictional part of the, of the episode that I caught on to was that small $200,000 investment. But let's just assume that Coleman Blair has a sidecar investment where they're doing nothing but small seed stage investments. When they do that, they're probably making decisions pretty quickly, again, because of a resources standpoint. They're probably not beating up the company with terms. 
I can tell you, anecdotally speaking, we have a bunch of clients who Cuban companies have invested into. Cuban is great with seed level investments. And I've, you know, he does this on purpose. He comes in with very fair terms. There's standard docs out there. If you're interested, you can look at seriesseed.com. Seriesseed.com is where most of the seed level terms originate. There's a term sheet on there. Most of the seed deals we do, or a lot of the, not most, but a lot of the seed deals we do have terms that are very similar to those. But Cuban's terms are pretty standard, pretty great. He's got a, he's got a set path for the company to push forward to a Series A. So perhaps that's what Coleman Blair was doing. Now, I'll tell you, of the VCs that we represent, we do have a couple of them that do get active in seed stage. Again, with not the same level of, I don't want to say diligence, because they're definitely doing diligence, but there's only so much diligence you can do on a C-level company. They don't have a bunch of data. They don't have a bunch of metrics. They don't have a bunch of employees that you can interview. They don't have a lot of customers to talk to. But we do have a couple of VCs that we represent that do do C-level flyers, not flyers, but C-level investments from time to time, usually because they're piggybacking off of someone else. And this is one thing that's really interesting to me is you get this competition between Coleman Blair and Raviga for the uh, for Jin Yang's you know Shazam for food or hypothetical Shazam for food app I don't know how much of that there is in the valley where you can get two guys bidding against each other we certainly see that we see situations here where you get a company that gets hot a startup has a lot of momentum for a number of reasons their round all of a sudden becomes very interesting and we get a lot of interest from investors. But that said, all the times that I've seen it happen, I never really get VCs who are being pitted against each other. Now, again, this is the Metroplex. This is Texas. Uh, there's only a handful of these guys out there. So perhaps that's why. In my experience, the VCs are usually more collaborative than competitive. So what I do see is when VCs want to get someone else in, they'll go in and they might shave a portion of their investment check to get someone else in there. Now, there's always going to be strategy involved because if you're the lead VC, you want to make sure that you're going to keep a majority of the VC shares or the VC voting interest for a number of reasons. But a lot of times there's good reason to go get a partner VC involved. One of those is because they might have other strategic connections that you want to leverage to this company, for this company. Another is just the board wisdom. Okay, let's have someone else in there to help us make decisions. Another is so that those VCs can work off each other for future deals, right? If you're a VC and you've got a great deal and you want to let someone else in, that other VC might let you in on another deal down the road. So I do see a lot of collaboration between the VCs that we deal with here in Texas. Okay, moving on through the show. Uh, I thought this show was pretty boring, to be honest, but I think they did a great job of setting up a bunch of different storylines. So now we have very... Uh, active and kind of deep storylines. You know, Gavin gets fired. Gavin Belson gets fired from from Hooli and gets replaced by Jack Barker, and which is the quickest kind of hostile executive employee takeover that I've ever seen. I'd be curious to see what happens with Gavin. I did not see the Gavin Richard Hendricks thing coming at the end, but now it makes perfect sense having seen it. So you've got Jack sticking at Hooli, Gavin going to do something new, perhaps with Richard. Uh, Baghetti goes back to school. He gets into Stanford where they, she was kind of laughing him out of the interview. And then all of a sudden she figures out that he was part of Bachmanity Insanity. And now she's got him as a guest as a guest lecturer. They didn't really explore. The show did not really explore how that guest lecturing event went. Curious to hear about that. 
Uh, we've got the, uh, you know, we don't know really know what the guys, what the Piper Chat guys are going to do with their time now. It kind of made sense that they were going to hop in and help out Monica or help out, help out Ehrlich to build out a demo. And I do think it'd be reasonable for a, some programmers that are that talented to kick out an MVP in a short amount of time. I don't want those of you that are listening who are who are the real engineers to to crucify me for this, but I, I think you could get something put together, sketched out, reasonable enough to at least pass muster, especially if those VCs are can't you know sniff out a fake pitch or a pitch that was invented on the spot. You could probably get something to them in a week or so, in a couple of days, that at least uh, pacified them. But I'm curious to see what those guys are going to do. We reintroduced Monica. Haven't had Monica hasn't had that deep of a storyline, so now she's got uh, a little bit of pressure coming on. We see that, um, and then you've got this, you know, Richard, who's kind of ticks, nervous ticks, are at an all-time high as he's trying to think through. You know, they're turning Richard into this crazy super intellect who is struggling with the world's problems, trying to solve this. Uh, you know, peer-to-peer internet, and he and he's kind of becoming crazier and crazier, swimming in his clothes and biting his nails and not sleeping and not whatnot. And then you start to see a parallel between Richard and Peter, right? Remember Peter, the guy from episode one, who was the former lead partner at Raviga, who passed away, doing some on the show, doing some crazy stunt. But apparently he was kind of a you know a, an odd genius, and I'm wondering if that's what they're going to turn Richard into. But also, Peter had a tremendous amount of success. And I wonder if this is foreshadowing that kind of success for Richard in the future. Uh, a couple of things I wanted to mention. I thought the comment was funny when they go to the grocery store and Richard makes a, uh, a joke about he doesn't want to be another effing task rabbit. And, you know, everyone inside the grocery store is from Postmates or Instacart or whatnot. And I thought that was good product placement by Instacart. I'm certain that they paid for that. I do know Instacart is very popular. It was developed out in out in the Bay Area. We do have Instacart doing some deliveries in Texas. I don't know if you go to a grocery store in the Bay Area if it is all all delivery services. I'm sure it is a good number of them. But I do think it's an interesting comment on society that we are now utilizing technology to replace tasks that you know were once entirely filled by individuals on their free time. Now you can utilize technology to do this for you. Uh, you know, in an in efficient manner, you can save time uh, for a little bit of, of money to do that. And I don't necessarily have a problem with that. I don't know if anyone really cares what my thoughts on that are, but I think that that's a good use of technology. You know, having these delivery services, you're putting people to work who want to do it. Uh, it seems to be a good exchange, you know, economic exchange of, uh, of goods and services there, of consideration for goods and services. Okay, so we've got the task rabbit comment. Uh, again, I thought that was that was funny. Good commentary on how 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 everyone is really interacting with what's coming out of Silicon Valley. So I think that covers it. That's just about everything. Again, not a super exciting show. I think this is a real setup show from a kind of like a theme and a thread standpoint. They're setting up a lot of storylines for the future. The Coleman Blair versus Raviga thing, we'll see if this persists. I will definitely follow this Jin Yang or this uh, Shazam for Food app development, and I'll try and parallel that with a typical startup. If a company did have a $200,000 seed investment, I would expect that $200,000 seed investment to last them and go from six to 12 months as far as runway goes. 
and them to be looking for there probably be a bridge round somewhere in between there for anywhere from 500 to a million five and then gearing up for an a round in probably 12 to 18 months so we'll definitely keep an eye on that okay before we wrap up i want to say we did get a couple of comments from people in the metroplex a couple you know pretty well-known startups who are not our clients but we're chiming in and just saying that they were listening and enjoyed the show so i really appreciate you guys doing that one of them claims that he was on a peloton machine so uh good for you this that particular podcast was only 16 or 17 minutes so hopefully you're on for longer than the podcast when aaron gets back we'll try and make this thing a little bit longer to keep you guys uh, engaged or entertained during your workout Again, we appreciate all your feedback. Please send us thoughts and comments, podcasts at VelaWoodLaw.com. That's with an S, without an S, podcast at VelaWoodLaw.com. It'll get here one way or another. Check out our website, VelaWoodLaw.com. We have a ton of content up on the startups page. If you're at the website, you go to the top, click on startups, and you will see there's a lot, a lot of, there are many links, and we have a lot of resources for startups that we're providing. We're kicking out a lot of this stuff. We just put up a really cool infographic called the Startup Life Cycle. So you can help you know where you should be and where the different parts of your business will be at each stage. If you're at a seed stage, if you're an early stage company, where should you be for office space? Where should you be for funding? How many employees should you have? Or you know, what types of employees? Do you have employees or independent contractors? Once you get to A round, how much funding should you have? What should your runway look like? What should your office space look like? So check out that startup lifecycle infographic. Also, we just published our 2016 deal audit so you can get an idea of kind of seed and series A deals in the Metroplex. I'm Kevin Vela, signing off for me and Aaron. Aaron wasn't here this week. Looking forward to having him back next week and hearing about his trip to South Korea. Oh, also Japan. I know he's going to Japan, in case anyone cares. Uh, check us out. Hit us up on Twitter, at Law or Instagram. And look forward to hearing from you during the week. Talk to you next week. Thanks. <laughs>